Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the executive director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry Nouwen to audiences right around the world. Each week, we endeavor to bring you a new interview with someone who's been deeply influenced by the writings of Henry Nouwen, or perhaps even a recording of Henry himself. Because we're new to the world of podcasts, taking time to give us a review or a thumbs up, or even share this episode, will mean a great deal to us, and allow us to reach more people around the world with meaningful and hopefully deeply spiritual content that continually reminds us of Henry's writings, his encouragement, And of course, the reminder that we are God's beloved. So with that said, let me take a moment to introduce my guest. You're in for a treat. The Reverend Michael Blair has just been appointed as the General Secretary of the United Church of Canada. The United Church of Canada is the largest Protestant denomination in Canada, ministering to more than 2 million people in about 3,000 congregations. Michael, it's a very new role for you. You officially begin November 1st. What is your vision for the church that you are bringing at this moment? Thanks, Karen, for the opportunity to have this conversation. Um, I think um, two things are part of what kind of informs my imagination as I think about the church moving forward. Um, I think the first one is for reconnection to what I call the commons that um, the church begins to rebuild partnerships and work with others outside of the bounds of the building. And certainly, I think in these days with COVID, we are being uh, encouraged and nudged to find new ways of, of being church. So I think that's that's one, one piece to both kind of um, model but also invite the church to consider how it may rebuild uh, connections to to the community in which it finds itself. And I think the second piece uh, for me is uh, a renewed sense, uh, uh, an idea that has caught my attention for quite a while is this notion which says, it is not that the church of God has a mission in the world, but the God of the God of mission as a church in the world. Mm. And so um, for me, it's uh, helping the church to be in a, a, a listening space to discover um, what God is up to mm-hmm. in the world mm-hmm. and where God is inviting um, uh, God's church to engage in the world. So th- those are two things I would say off the bat that are um, what I'm bringing to this particular role at this particular time. I love that you immediately use the word imagination because when I was kind of doing a little bit of work ahead of time, I came across a couple of quotes from you that I just loved. In answer to why do you do what you do, you said, I love to help people expand their imagination. And you added, in order to change somebody's behavior, you have to change their imagination. And I I just found that so significant. Uh, uh, Clearly, there's something wonderfully creative in that. Yeah, and and, in fact, the the, the quote comes from uh, Paul Ricoeur, the French philosopher, and he was the one who um, proposed the notion that in order to change a person's behavior, you must first change their imagination. 
And I think in in many ways, um, we sometimes get stuck because we can't see <laughs> we can't see what we can't see, and so I think it's uh, a critical piece of engaging is to help people expand their imagination. Um, you know, when I think about um, the particular moment of time we're in, especially around issues of anti-Black racism, remember a time when um, within the context of both society and the church, an interracial, interracial marriage was, was frowned upon. It was not seen as a possibility. But um, as people's imagination <laughs> uh, broadened, it, it's it's a non-starter in in many ways, in many contexts uh, today. Right, uh, people wouldn't think twice about a, a inter interracial marriage. So, um, being able and I and I think in the ministry of Jesus, um, that's what Jesus did um, was to kind of. Um, enable, I think this, the parables um, are ways of expanding the imagination uh, of, of uh, the disciples and those who were hearing Jesus. So I think that became a critical um, part of the ministry of Jesus, the stories, and stories are one of the ways in which we help to shape imagination. I, I found it interesting. I kind of went back over your story, and, and it would be nice for people to know kind of the roots of where you've come from, uh, You your journey started back in Jamaica. You were born in Jamaica and as a church you were part of the Anglican church there which would be the Episcopalian church in the state and then you were ordained in the Convention Baptist Church um, and now in the United Church. You've been all over. Tell us just a little bit about your own life journey. You bring obviously even as you as we talk we're going to be talking about the times we're living in and I loved what you've just brought up that it's important for people to know that you bring uh the richness of, of having a black heritage from Jamaica. So tell us a bit about your story. So as, as you say, I, I was born in Jamaica, um, raised, uh, as you mentioned, in the Anglican Church, which would be the Episcopal Church in the U.S., um, was nurtured in a Pentecostal tradition. <laughs> so already you can see a shift um, in terms of kind of uh, shaped in liturgy. And I think the Anglican liturgy is something that's still kind of, um, I find lots of energy and resonance and, and, um, and power in. Um, but my formative uh, experience was in, in the Pentecostal tradition uh, where my, my faith became more and more kind of personalized. My faith became personalized and, and fairly dynamic. I um, sensed a, a strong call in uh, to ministry and um, had the opportunity because my family was uh, migrating uh, to come to Canada to study. Came with the the particular desire to be trained and to um, go back to Jamaica to be engaged in ministry. Um, during my training, my initial days, I was involved with um, the Fellowship Baptist Church here, here in Canada, and I finished my training at Ontario Bible College, which is now um, Tyndale College and Seminary, and then went on to, because I felt the need to be able to um, offer a kind of counseling um, component to my ministry, went on to university to do a degree in psychology. 
And in uh, I should back up and just say, you know, I wasn't aware <laughs> that I was a black person in a sense until I came into the Canadian uh, context and my my skin color um, became uh, an issue. Um, when I finished a university and wanted to engage in ministry, the congregation, the Fellowship Baptist Church, which was a part of the time, uh, when I um, was exploring with them the opportunity to engage in ministry, was told that there was no place for me in the in leadership in the church because of the color of my skin. Wow. That there was no room. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that was a, a, a traumatic uh, experience for me because it was the, the first time I'd ever um, experienced kind of the blatant um, uh, racism uh, that that um, was right in my face mm-hmm. and um, went to through a whole host of circumstances, um, had conversation with the leadership in the Convention Baptist Church at the time, and just experienced uh, a whole um, different welcome. And and in that context, uh, from the the structure of the church, uh, there were there didn't seem to be any particular issue with the color of my skin. Um, the when I started after I finished seminary and I went to uh, Wycliffe College at uh, Toronto School of Theology, when I finished seminary and was um, exploring opportunities for ministry, I recognized again that um, although at some level my skin color was not an issue um, for the denomination, in the minds of of many folks and in the minds of the leadership at that time i could only serve a black congregation so as i was looking for opportunities they were only focusing on on black congregations and in some ways felt that that that's probably a better fit for me than than any place else um, thankfully, I, I was called uh, to Walmer Road Baptist Church at the time, and in that space was a fairly multicultural um, uh, community and um, gave me an opportunity to kind of be <laughs> a minister to the whole people of God, not only to people who look like me. And um, when I left there and went to a, another congregation, again, experienced um, significant racism. There was one person in particular who uh, was in church every Sunday morning but didn't want to have anything to, to do with me and uh, discovered that um, part of her issue was that I was a, a black man. Mm. She just could not uh, cope with the idea of somebody being black. So the, um, I served a, a number of congregations, and um, the the idea of my skin color was a, um, a theme. My life got complicated, <laughs> and how I ended up in the how I ended up in the United Church uh, in some ways was that I had been kind of struggling. Uh, all those years around uh, my sexual identity and um, um, in the last congregation so the first congregation I served in the with the uh, Baptist uh, convention was Walmer Road Baptist Church I left and went to a number of congregations and came back to Walmer and um, during my Walmer days um, started getting 
sick and um every time i would end up in that emergency um they were i was told they couldn't find what was happening to me and finally um recognized that there was actually something going on and i remember um going to see a psychiatrist and and saying to him i i want to live i'm tired of dying and i have a secret and so um through that process uh worked through um owning my identity and coming out as a gay man and that ended my ministry within the baptist life there was no place for me um and it was the irony i felt welcome and accepted around my my racial identity but didn't feel welcome around my sexual identity and um ended up working in a, a social uh, justice ministry in region park which is um, at that time one of the poorer neighborhoods in toronto and through my experience of working there um, it came into touch with the united church and both felt that uh, in terms of my faith journey and in terms of my identity this was a place for me and so it's been home uh, for i'd say for the last 15 years or so what a journey what a journey i i've often heard that the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, and obviously you lived through that. But you've also lived through a, a level of the deepest personal rejection. Uh, could the two go together? I, just because I know we talked about this before, I have a feeling that through that part of your very difficult time and, and, and coming out, that you found um, the writings of Henry Nouwen to be really helpful. Yeah, and I mean, there were, in in way in many ways. So I think I'll just say that um, uh, Nowen's uh, writing, you know, come back to the the thought of imagination. Um, <clears throat> Nowen's writing allowed me to um, frame an approach to ministry. I think he, he impacted my imagination around uh, ministry, and you know. Um, I think in two or three ways. One of, um, you know, he tells the story of being a chaplain um, on a, a ship and um, discovered that he was the, <laughs> he was useless. <laughs> and um, that that notion of being ministry around being useless was, was something that, that, that helped me mm-hmm. in terms of kind of my own sense of ministry how do i um come alongside people um in my ministry in a way that um again allowed me to kind of live with, with a certain level of freedom in that you know i couldn't fix everything but i could be present and um that that notion of presence um was a was a big uh, big help for me um now and kind of shaped my spirituality so my my um for years i would do silent retreats and just kind of spend some time um um kind of deepen in my 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 space of understanding the depth of god's love for me and in some ways it was a gift, but it was also part of the struggle because on one level, um, I was trying to absorb this notion that God loves me deeply. 
And yet there was this kind of sense that I have the secret mm-hmm. <laughs> and could God love that, that part of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was um, a real struggle. And, but, but I think no one, um, and I think the liberation for me and part of my journey with my, uh, my ability to, to say to my psychiatrist, I, I want to live, I'm tired of dying was that um, when I read about his struggle with his identity and recognized that uh, here was a, a, a person who um, knew the depth of God's love, was able mm-hmm. to influence people in that space and yet struggled with that. And that um, in some ways that struggle was part of his gift of, of, of what he had to offer. It, it provided for me a liberation to say, God doesn't condemn me yeah. <laughs> for my sexual identity. Right. So how do I learn to live into that space? So that, so that, that, that became a, a part of my my journey and story and and the the other piece i think uh the way now and has influenced me is um i was taken um and this is just broad stroke taken the fact that whenever he traveled he would always take somebody from the community with him Mm-hmm. And again, that notion of of how we do ministry in partnership uh, together, and and we don't speak for the other, but we create space for the other, has also been something that uh, shaped shaped my imagination mm-hmm. around ministry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's really lovely. You're you're absolutely right. It's it's interesting because um, Henry's Henry had an inner struggle. There was no no two ways about it that those who knew him um knew him well and knew that part was a, a struggle with his sexuality um i i i think that that which i know of him was that he made a choice that his he would keep his vows of celibacy because his priesthood was very important to him and so he from what i know didn't choose to come out and be known as in quotes the gay priest and i think that whole reason was because he felt he had something so rich to give that it would get in the way of him being able to give it. And and that was really, at the depths of it, was his knowing that who he was was God's beloved, that God loved the real Henry. And in essence, he knew that was the richest thing he'd found. And, it, and we often say, you know, as we start this t- broadcast, we say, you know, our, our desire is to give that out to the world that you might know that you're a beloved child of God, that you might know that with certainty. Um, I was so excited when I called you. I was asking for an interview because I really wanted to hear what you had to say about these this particular time where we're we're seeing, you know, we, we're wanting to respond in in, in uh, a bold and and uh, good way to what's happening. Uh, with a, a, a longing for social justice, a longing that Black Lives Matter. and But then I got the good news that here you were, I thought you were about to retire, and instead you were coming into this new position. And I, I just recall you saying, you know, I'm sure when you came out, you thought there wouldn't be any place for you to minister. And God has certainly opened doors for you. It's just incredible. Yeah, and, and very grateful. And... Um, you know, I think in in many ways, um, the the truth <laughs> that I think Henry uh, discovered um, 
of of being um, comfortable in in God's love, I think, has been a, a lesson, you know, ever ever since I I came out and. I'll, I'll, I can share a couple of stories, um, which in some ways have, have brought me to today. Um, the when I first came out, I received a call from uh, from somebody, and um, because I had some dealing with a person around the church, I I ignored the 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 machine. I didn't pick up the phone, and um, um, a couple of weeks later, the person phoned back again, and I did not uh, take the phone up. So I called the church and I said, uh, this person is trying to get a hold of me, um, you know, because of the connection with the church, you need to be in touch with him and, and let him know, know the situation that I'm no longer at the church. And at the time I hadn't even put two and two together that he was calling me at a home number, which was a new number. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I didn't put that, together and um uh, he called back a third time and and i picked up and we chatted and he said uh, a mutual friend of ours had, had told him about uh what had happened with the church and and he said to me i don't want you to be out there alone he says i know how difficult this this journey is and i don't want you to be out there alone so if you're open to it I'd be willing to have coffee with you once a week and just be um, somebody who will uh, accompany you uh, through this this time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was just, it was just, it was just this gift. Wow. And, and, and I, uh, I, I received it um, as, um, God saying, now that you've gotten to the space where you can own who you are, you need to know that I am not abandoning you. And so for uh, almost eight months, I met with this person uh, every week for coffee. And, um, you know, until (laughs) I was able to find employment and kind of begin to nudge myself forward in terms of and and then he disappeared out of my life um and every attempt um to be in touch um he uh, didn't <laughs> he just said I, I was needed for a time you know wow. you're yeah. and 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 so i look at that and i see yeah god um kept reminding me that he had not abandoned me that god had not abandoned me that god mm-hmm. still loved and cared for me and he was he made it very tangible in this person kind of walking alongside of me and and i think in as i look back uh, particularly since 2001 um i i see these moments where um, um god has um said um, I'm still in your court. <laughs> right? I, I've not abandoned you. And um, the call to ministry is still, is, I haven't taken away my call. 
and, and so so that that those two things you know you're not abandoned i'm still in your court you're still deeply loved and um i've not taken your call and and i've had struggles saying you know i'm tired <laughs> let me go <laughs> and, and 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 god says no um you know i remember um uh, I was when I worked in Regent Park. I um, was part of a, a, a number of community initiatives and community groups, and and one of the days uh, I'd offered to host one of the meetings in in our building. In our and it hadn't even occurred to me. Um, I didn't kind of think in the frame. Um, you know, we operated out of a church building. And one of the people who worked for the city um, showed up for the meeting. And when they arrived, they stood outside. And um, so I went up to chat and they said uh, two things. I can't come in. And, um, and talked about the fact of how they had been hurt and abused by a church community. So they could not cross the threshold of coming into the building and shared a bit about what um, uh, what this is about. And, and the second thing he said is that you surprised me because you're not like, and, you know, that was the first time he discovered that I was a ordained uh, clergy person. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he couldn't get it through his head that I wasn't what... <laughs> like the others <laughs> in his mind uh-huh. you know but so we had a chat and we talked and he eventually did come in uh, for the meeting and through a, a, a friendship you know rediscovered church and and um, became involved for a while uh, uh, with the church community uh, i've lost touch with 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 the person but it's 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 that sense of um kind of knowing who you are knowing that affirmation that god loves you you know mm-hmm. uh, and that that god has not taken away the call has allowed me to kind of allowed me a certain kind of freedom mm-hmm. and i think as i've lived in that space of freedom i've had opportunities to kind of be supportive and responsive to others and enable others to to find their their freedom as well and um you know, I think as I've kind of lived in that place of freedom and I've been uh, enabled, emboldened, uh, whatever language you want to use in terms of kind of engaging in in the in what God's doing in the world, right? So mm-hmm. um, I would never have thought of that um, staff person as, <laughs> you know, um, somebody to go after around their faith, but just being present mm-hmm. with um and that that whatever was going on in their, that person's life god was at work mm-hmm. and i came alongside with what god was doing and the opportunity for the conversation so so all that to say i think that's that's what and so you know coming into this role um, um is is part of that i think i've allowed myself to kind of live into the freedom um, that I've discovered and 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 because God's calling is still there and God's up to something and I'm responding to what God's up to 
it's interesting you know you come to that verse the comfort wherewith you've been comforted you'll comfort others but the reality is that when you needed the comfort you were probably at the lowest part of your life and you didn't know what god could do with it clearly in your case it was so low that you're in hospital going I, you know, you had to find a reason to live again. And this is, this is amazing. Um, None of us choose. Like I I think back to the lowest part of my life and you, and I remember arguing with God, if you're just doing this so I can comfort someone else, I'm not interested. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not willing, I'm not willing. But what you, what is so wonderful about the comfort that you're comforted with it is yeah. better than you ever envisioned it to be. You, God is yeah. better than you ever thought. It is, it, it's that imagination question that you raise. You know, you, you have to change your imagination. And this wonderful God who loves you so much, who calls you his beloved, is, it meets you there in the place where you feel unlovable and loves yeah. you back into his kingdom. And I'm so glad that he's not letting go of the call on your life. I'm sure there'll be people that this will be particularly meaningful as they listen, or perhaps they know somebody they want to send, have them listen to this podcast because it, to me it is also just laced with hope. It's laced with God's goodness. Um, it's funny because, you know, way, way back when we, when we started, I was thinking, okay, well, what I'm going to ask you about is I'll, I'll probably ask you, how are you coping with the pandemic? I mean, that's a, a global thing. And by the way, our audience is a global audience. It goes right around the world. We get responses from people in Japan and from England and from South Africa and lots from all across North America. L- let me first hear, how are you coping with pandemic? How are you coping with COVID? In, in in many ways, I think have having gone through the kind of early days when it felt uh, somewhat bleak and 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 uncertain, and it's given me time. Um, on one hand, um, you know, I live in Toronto. I I know places in Toronto, but I've just reconnected with the beauty of the parks in Toronto, and so. Um, you know, um, every day after I shut computer down, I go for a walk. And on the weekends, we've been just kind of partner and I've just been wandering around the city and and walking on trails and uh, uh, and in parks and just discovering like this is Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> um, the and the other thing is that I've I'm starting to to appreciate COVID as a gift, um, not to diminish the the health um, concerns, um, but that it when it's it, it's shown the cracks in our system, mm-hmm. um, and in some ways it's it it just says it's just this kind of reality that says wow this is this you know this world isn't as we think it is, you know, so the crack in the system and the struggle, you know, I think about the fact that um, the early days of COVID, the response was shelter in place. Well, what does, what does shelter mean to somebody in, in the Philippines or somebody in India? Um, You know, what does shelter mean for folks who are living on the street? And, and in some ways we had this kind of one size fit 
all without kind of thinking through the implication of what it means for different kinds of people. But it, I think it's highlighted the fact that we can't go back to the way things are. And, and, I, and, I, and I kind of see that as a gift. And in, in many ways, you know, and I'm, I'm sick and tired of technology in terms of Zoom or <laughs> Teams or whatever, that it's it's allowed for a continuing connection with folks that that I find just um, energizing and life giving. You know, I I part of a a, a group of um, folks who are thinking through what it means to be an advocate. It's it's a Asian um, uh, group, uh, Philippines, Indonesia, um, uh, Thailand. Um, um, Hong Kong and you know we meet at 5 30 on a Monday morning <laughs> and <Wow. laughs> when I when I when I think Sunday night I think I have to get up to be alert for 5 30 on a on a Monday morning um but the richness of that experience of, of being in conversation with folks um you know, as they struggle to to ground themselves and understand how their um how they how their faith mm-hmm. and their lived experience can help shape their ability to advocate and and I come off you know at eight o'clock when we're done in the morning I come as high as a kite because oh. it, there's this been this opportunity so those are some of the ways in which I'm, I'm coping with COVID. <laughs> it's funny because I have the feeling like I think in some ways the for lack of a better word, the drag of COVID is it's going on and on and on and on. I mean, probably three months would have been just like, it would have been like a little stop in the in the journey of my life. But now when I look at it and I go, eh, I think we're in for a year, maybe more, who knows? You realize it takes that much to grind to a halt on a halt, lot of the yeah. things that you just did. You just, it had become so habitual and your life was spinning and just like you're describing your walks and your sense of seeing the world that you're actually living in, I, I find, for example, I've discovered my community. I, I live yep. in one of those bedroom communities, you know, that you get in your car and you go into the office, you drive, you know, an hour and then you come back to it. And I knew so few people. And now there isn't anybody that we don't pass in a walk that you don't say hello to. Yep. And I yep. love watching. I, I love getting to know my neighbors because in the isolation, suddenly, um, even if it's just seeing their familiar faces and knowing we all live in this, we're all in this together. It's It's been quite meaningful. Yeah. Uh, I found it really rich. Um, I, I'm In the midst of a pandemic, we had some terrible things happen that just mm-hmm. brought to the fore the reality of racial injustice. We, we lost George Floyd. We lost Breonna Taylor. We lost Amand Arbery. And many, many, many more, not just in America, in Canada, and countries all around the world. And this has been an amazing time. Um, and I, I just love to hear from you about this. I mean, we we put it all together as a movement, Black Lives Matter. I find myself, because we're also in Canada and in the North America, I think we also need to say Indigenous Lives Matter. But having said that, I'd like to hear what you want to say about that and what you believe can come from this. And what, what have you hoped for? What discourages you? Uh, so, you know, to start, I think, again, just when I talk about COVID um, as being a gift, um, the events particularly surrounding um, 
George Floyd's death, um, where I think because we had stopped for a while, and even though the kind of noise of the political situation in the U.S. was still at play, our collective global kind of uh, slowdown enabled us to see that in a way that finally said to us, enough is enough. And, you know, there are others um, uh, in in more recent days who have been uh, brutalized by uh, police violence um, that in some ways kind of skirts through the, the headlines and hasn't really kind of drawn our attention. So I think it's 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 drawn our attention to say, wow, things are are worse. And the fact that it has sparked a global a global movement um, to me is just remarkable. And the remarkable thing about it is that it's not, um, you know, it's not leaving the headlines. Mm-hmm. That it's 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 shifted. Um, thinking in a way that are are beginning to people are beginning to shift you know i mean mm-hmm. our own institutions here in canada you know um, cbc uh, is is looking at itself you know governments are looking at themselves you know uh, anti-black racism i mean the city of toronto where i live has been uh, ahead of the game in that it had uh, anti-black racism strategy and action plan and it's moving into so i think in one hand um, there's a a, 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 people are looking at and resources are being put into kind of to address the kind of systemic nature of the exclusion of uh, racialized individuals particularly black individuals and uh, doesn't diminish the reality of anti-asian and anti-indigenous racism but for for a, a time we're kind of saying the the reality and experience of black peoples across the globe is an issue that needs to be attended attended to um, and um, folks are trying to to figure out so on one hand I'm I, I I'm sitting back and I'm just amazed at the fact that the conversation has become the conversation mm-hmm. and people are trying to, to figure it out. My my fears, I'll talk about my fears and then my hope. My fear is that um, a couple of things. The church community has been silent. Yes. Um, and um, that, in a way, it breaks my heart that... Um, churches haven't really come out and um, and strongly owned their complicity in 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 racial structures uh, churches haven't come uh, out and 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 said we understand that um, our history is a, a history rooted in colonialism and um, our 
our practice of mission uh, over the years has been a practice that has devalued the people we have gone to, you know, so whether it's to Africa or India or wherever, we've, we've labeled folks as heathens, as all kinds of language we've used about who they are. And so we haven't gone, we haven't been part of a, a, a our history is not a history of recognizing the innate value and dignity of of people we have missionized, right? We 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 start that they're deficient. And so my fear is that if the church and religious communities don't um begin to uh, respond and and publicly I think own their complicity um they're going to miss the boat <laughs> mm. um right and and in a way part of what happens is that in the early days with the response to floyd's death a number of denominations here in canada made statements but as you read their statements they were reacting to the violence <laughs> you know they they're they're talking about being called to peacemaking and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff and part of me wanted to say bullcrap you know, the, 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 the reality is racism exists. You have contributed to it. And just to pause and look at the landscape of who is given leadership in the life of many of our religious communities, it's white male for the most part. Mm-hmm. So um, that so my fear is that lack of um, um, adequate response from the faith community. My fear is that many... Um, uh, Christian, white Christians um, are caught up with trying to prove that they're not racist mm-hmm. because they have um, they have um, uh, they have a perception <laughs> that this is about individual kind of racist behavior mm-hmm. and act and and that's you know they're individual racists they're individuals who perpetuate a kind of um but they don't get the systemic so you know they're gathering in in and uh, having book clubs and book study and all that kind of thing and and um and part of it is trying to fix themselves that <laughs> that mm-hmm. that they're not racist as opposed to saying uh the, the, the kind of structural systemic racism that exists and what George Floyd's death, because there's a power system who feels it has the freedom to murder somebody in broad daylight um, and to be impugned by that. The kind of systems that are set up, we're not attending to. We're trying to fix ourselves rather than, than the kind of uh, look at it, look at a kind of systemic mm-hmm. um uh, challenge in terms of change in uh, behavior, like, uh, you know, a change in practice and policies and that kind of thing. And again, uh, my fear is that if we if we get into that space and don't kind of challenge that space, again, the, 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 the shift that needs to happen to bring about a kind of liberative freedom for people uh, Black folks and people of color uh, will be missed. We'll have a whole bunch of people thinking, ain't I good? You know, I, I did the reading, but they're not doing the kind of heavy lifting or, around 
around that. And I think the third thing I would say, I'm, I'm afraid of a kind of um, a level of tokenism in terms of the response. So let's, let's find people of color and, and put them in places of, of leadership. And, and then we can say we've kind of, we've done our, we've done our thing and not actually kind of do the, the, the systemic kind of policy, polities um, work that is necessary. So, so I think those are my fear. Um, my hope mm -hmm. is that this will be um, a time of kind of a, a genuine um, shift in our in our mindsets in understanding the depth of the colonial enterprise. Mm -hmm. So that we would, my hope is that our you know every part of the system um, would begin to understand how colonialism has deprived uh, people across the globe from their full humanity. And that, that, that's the work we we'll, we'll do. So, you know, uh, TRC, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that work um, kind of was an unveiling in terms of the indigenous reality. And I think we need that kind of unveiling around um, black lives, uh, around Asian lives, um, and, and a commitment to, to kind of live uh, authentically and um, in um, right relations. And the other piece, I think, which is a critical piece, is that we, we start to think about reparation. Yes. Uh, what does reparation look like? Uh, what is what is um, how are we going to do that? Uh, to um, and reparation is not all about um, uh, monies, <laughs> but there there are systemic ways in which we can deal with recreation that will actually make my kids and should should I have grandkids uh, live in a world where. Um, you know, as as Martin Luther King said, they're not evaluated by the color of their skin. Right. Absolutely. It's funny, as, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, for such a time as this, have you come into the kingdom? I'm, I was going to say, you know, what's your vision for leadership? And obviously, I, I mean, the United Churches has taken a leading role in the, in, in the issues of, of fairness and justice in Canada. But but it's like you're you're peeling off the skin and saying, let's go a lot deeper than that. It can't just be discussion. It can't just be can't just be a set of ideas. The practices have to change. Yeah, it's interesting that um, it, to use an example. So, in, um, the United Church of Canada has offered uh, two apologies to the Indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. uh, one apology was. Uh, with regards to residential schools. And one apology was um, the fact that uh, the colonial kind of notion that we came, we thought we knew better, we didn't appreciate what you have, blah, blah, blah. What's interesting <laughs> is that it's been over 30 years since the first apology was offered. It has not yet been uh, accepted. It's been acknowledged, it's been received, but it's not been accepted. 
and I think there is something for us to learn in this moment because I think what the Indigenous community in, in, in terms of the life of the United Church was saying to us, walk the walk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, if you walk the walk, we will trust the apology. Mm-hmm. And I, I think um, we all of us as society as a whole um, and church in particular, we need to walk the walk. If we actually do believe that every human person is of value, of worth, as innate dignity and is deeply, deeply um, um, in a kind of prodigal son kind of way, uh, loved by God, mm-hmm. then um, what does that look like in terms of how we build communities, how how aware we are about who is missing from conversation in our spaces, how we um, don't make assumptions about people and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah. Reconciliation can only happen when people are treated as equals. Yeah. And seen as equals. And and there's a truth telling that's an important part of that. We've got to tell the truth that we have not, <laughs> in truth, affirmed yeah. the, the basic dignity of all human beings. Sometimes I, th- I think I've, I find in this place you go, we've made such a mess of it. How can we ever make it better? And it, mm-hmm. it is an amazing thing. It takes me back to, in a way, your call upon the church to, to do so much better. We, we need to be a force for God's love in the world that is really um, astonishes the world with love, astonishes it with with the level of kindness and respect that we bring to another human being. Um, I was reading this one quote from um, civil rights leader, the wife of Mar- Martin Luther King, Coretta Scott King. She said, struggle is a never-ending process. Freedom is never really won. You earn it and win it in every generation. Yeah. We have to own the moment that we are in right now. And as best we can to prepare our children to be even better at it than we are. I think what's very exciting about the protests that we see right now is the surge. The It bursts with young people going, we don't want to be part of that old way. We want something new. And I think that is also exciting. I think that's mm-hmm. what I see in the timing of what's going on. I was curious. I was thinking about you and I was thinking... If right now, in this moment of time and space and you entering into leadership and, uh, well, you already are a leader, you're not entering into it, you're just being called as to what you are, but if you had the opportunity to sit down with Henry now and what would you want to talk with him about? About what are you wrestling with right now? I'm curious what you think he would have to offer. Oh, well, that's, that's a fascinating question. <laughs> that's the left field question. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I, well, yeah. Um, so I, I think um, there, there are probably two things I would want, want um, uh, him to, to kind of nuance, and especially in this, this particular moment and, and um, um, is to articulate a more um, because in some ways he's he's he talks about the love of God in a way that's very broad and deep in general. But how do you um, uh, you know 
so a, a question for me to him would be so um george george floyd's family has asked you to do the eulogy what would you say to them mm-hmm. um you know how would you help them um how would you articulate how do you continue to articulate that kind of deep love mm-hmm. that god has in in the midst of such a heinous um, crime that has happened to to Floyd, so th- th- I, I want to engage him around that because I think in some ways, um, and and just to you know before I get to my second point, in some ways, um, a lot of our younger folks and and the younger folks who are in the struggle and the battle for kind of justice and liberation and and are basically um, um, you know, on the streets marching for Black Lives Matter, are afraid of the church. Don't trust the church. Mm-hmm. Don't trust those of us who 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 claim to be part of. I mean, part of it is is they don't trust institutions, mm-hmm. and I get that. But there's a particular um, discomfort, dis-ease with um, religious institution. Mm-hmm. And so how as um, how as leaders in institution and so probably at the, the point of that kind of conversation about what you would say to um, Floyd's at Floyd's eulogy is a question is how um, we have something very important to offer to every generation and this generation in particular. Um, so how do we reclaim that 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 space of people who are at discomfort with what we represent? Yeah. How do we get into a conversation past what we represent? Because they can't see past what we represent. Right? And no matter what, how powerful it is that we have to offer, how we do that. And and I think that for me that's that's a a, a critical. Um, a, kind of of question mm-hmm. um, I think no one also didn't necessarily kind of um, um, talk about the, the church as such church as church mm-hmm. and in this particular time um, as a leader where um, the world shifted and COVID in some ways has shifted the world <laughs> like there's no you know what mm-hmm. we know all that space of comfort that space that that um, thing even the whole notion of how we gather all that is is, is shifting mm-hmm. and um you know how do we you know i probably want to engage him around uh, the the prodigal you know this the, the story of the prodigal sandwich as part of uh, one of his latest book, you know, what, 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 what further themes or messages out of that, uh, out of the story of the prodigal, that enables us to kind of live into this kind of new world, uh, um, you know, um, uh, new normal. Because, mm-hmm. frankly, you know, as I, I move into this role uh what is the church going to look like mm-hmm. <laughs> in a year right mm-hmm. um, 
you know, the, both the kind of on, you know, the, the, the online presence and in person, and it's it, it's going to be a hybrid of that kind of thing. You know, we've we've lived in a world where we believe that having a Facebook page and and having you know how many followers on Facebook and Instagram have um, created uh, community. Mm-hmm. And what we're discovering through COVID is that the touch really is significant for people. And even yeah. the fact that a lot of our younger adults now are out and about ignoring all the the COVID requirements because that kind of personal touch is important. And so how do we speak our truth mm-hmm. in, this, in this new world? And that's the question. Um, how... How you know how this radical father uh, in the story of the prodigal offers us some new insights into into this new reality? So those are a couple of pieces that I would mm-hmm. probably have some conversation with them. Yeah, you know what's interesting? Something in what you said reminded me of the reality that he had a near-death experience toward the end of his life. He he had they almost thought they would lose him. He had been hit by a car. And um, strangely enough, I, I think that was just probably about two years before he died, it changed him dramatically. It, was, it almost gave him peace because in the midst of that, he, he, it, it was such a profound experience. And from there, you hear so much of his talk being about giving our lives as a gift that when we die, our lives are a gift. And, and this is a I, I, I don't have a right to say this, but I can't think of a life that's been given that has more profoundly changed the world right now mm-hmm. than George Floyd. I, I'm just, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I, I'm crushed because I don't want to give my child. I ache for that family. And as you said, what would Henry have said at the funeral? Uh, actually, I really think funerals are where ministers come into their own. You either have something to say or you don't. And, and yeah. at that moment, uh, you don't want to hear your life is being given for the world. But in some right. ways, I feel like it's a hinge point that the world can't yeah. turn back from. A, yeah. Yeah. You know, It's a profound hinge point in, in, in yeah. our time. And we have lived through it. Yeah. And is it's, so there. There are vestiges of the Christ story mm. um, in that, right? yeah. um, uh, and so how do you how do you lift that up um, yeah. uh, in a way without kind of minimizing yeah. uh, the violence that has happened? But it's but it's also a transformative movement. And and it was interesting. So. You know, it it it, um, it 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 calls me to kind of think about in this moment. Um, um, uh, so when I think of the civil rights movement and and um, you know um, Martin Luther King uh, being um, assassinated, and there was a, a you know kind of whole movement around that. Um, when I compare the two, Floyd's death seems to have a, a, a more profound kind of global engagement. And maybe because, um, um, you know, 
now as compared to when King was assassinated, there's a, 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 a larger sense of glo a global reality, a larger sense that we're committed, we're connected globally. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure that King's life, King's death had that kind of galvanizing global kind of experience, right? I mean, mm -hmm. on one hand, Floyd's life, you know, you, there's a part which is that this is an, a US story, Mm -hmm. Right, um, but it's become a global story. It's become a global. Um, it's the wound issue. on the on the world's heart. Yeah, it, it really is, yeah. and it's yeah. it's like how do we tend to that wound without being deeply honest that we had a part in it? Yeah. Well, I'm excited that God's brought you into this place of leadership. I. I know you went through a great valley when you thought that the call on your life was over because that call of who you really truly were in your in your sexuality and in the, the deepest part of your being was was not going to be received. But I am so grateful that God's called you for this moment, for this time, with this kind of vision, and that you will be speaking to imaginations, uh, helping us look into... Um, how to go forward from here. I just, uh, I pray there'll be such a, a blessing on your words and on your actions and, and there'll be um, resources abundant to feed your spirit. Thank you. Yeah. It's been a, a pleasure to talk with you, Michael. I wish you well. Uh, it's great. Thanks, Karen. On we go. <laughs> Thank you so much okay. for your time. All right. <laughs> All right. Take Bye -bye. care. Folks, I just want to thank you for taking time to listen. I hope you came away from this interview with Michael Blair inspired. I certainly was. I love his honesty. It was deep and it was challenging. If you did enjoy this podcast again, we'd be so grateful if you take time to give us a stellar review or a thumbs up or, or even share it with your friends and family. As well, you'll find links in the show notes of our website and any content resources or books discussed in this interview. There's even a link to books to get you started, just in case you're new to the writings of Henry Nouwen. Thank you again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>